This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm Laura Rovard, a biology professor at the University of San Diego and the moderator of this event. It was just over a year ago that COVID-19 caused life as we know it to come screeching to a halt. We've all been dramatically impacted by COVID. Jobs gone remote, grandkids we couldn't see or hug. But I want to especially acknowledge those here tonight that lost a loved one. Please know that we see your loss and are so sorry for it. And that's part of the human side of COVID and what will be front and center for our discussion tonight. When we reflect back on the last year, science certainly grabbed a lot of the headlines. January 2020 wasn't just the start of a new year, but a new decade. But none of us had any idea what what was in store. That in short order, our collective vocabulary would include words like droplets, antibodies, and remdesivir. Over the course of the last year, we watched the science of COVID unfolding in real time. And by early fall, it became clear that a viable vaccine was getting close. In fact, several vaccines. And those vaccines were the only real path out of the pandemic. By December 2020, shots were going into arms. The speed by which the vaccines were created was made possible by over a decade of basic research in mRNA vaccines and their lipid nanoparticle delivery system. But as astounding as this scientific achievement is, it's just part of the vaccine story. The next chapter, getting the vaccine to everyone, is perhaps equally as challenging. And this process is complicated by myriad factors. Some of the vaccines have to be kept at extremely cold temperatures, requiring freezers that not all medical facilities have. The vaccine, at least for now, is in limited supply, creating a vaccine hierarchy. There are groups that are hesitant to take the vaccine. There are over 350 different languages spoken in the U.S. There are people in densely populated urban centers and remote rural areas that are tough to reach. To date, Appointments are first come, first served based on the eligibility tiers, but getting those appointments generally requires reliable internet, transportation, and a schedule flexible enough to drop everything and head to that appointment whenever you're able to get one. All of these things constitute barriers to the end goal of vaccinating the U.S. population. Not only is it moral and ethical to make sure everyone that wants the vaccine can receive it in a timely and equitable manner, it's necessary. None of us is completely safe until all of us are safe. We need to reach herd immunity to stop the risk of new variants forming that our current vaccines might be less effective against. So how do we make this happen? Never before have we tried to vaccinate 330 million people at the same time. Literally no one has ever done this before. And that brings us back to the human part of our discussion. We need lots of diverse voices, experiences, and expertise to make these vaccinations happen. So that's what tonight's conversation is about. Our panelists, who you'll meet in a few minutes, will lead a discussion about the challenges in getting our entire population vaccinated against COVID-19, focusing in particular on our San Diego community. But before we get to that, one of our panelists, Martha Fuller, will give a brief overview about the current COVID-19 vaccines, the logistics for delivery, and the COVID experiences of different racial and ethnic groups. My name is Martha Fuller, and I'm an associate professor at the University of San Diego School of Nursing. As a pediatric nurse practitioner, promoting vaccinations has always been important to me. This video gives a brief introduction 
to prepare you for our discussion this evening. It's only fair that we share the lens that we use to prepare for this evening, care for the under-resourced or the underserved. We represent science and community service, but we are not bench researchers who developed COVID-19 vaccines. As Laura said, I'm going to give you a lightning-fast introduction to the three COVID vaccines currently authorized for use in the United States under emergency use authorization. Here's the enemy, the COVID-19 virus, or SARS-CoV-2. I'm using these graphics from the New York Times because I loved their clarity. As you can see in the center, the RNA that codes for the spike protein is shown and outside you see the red spikes, which give the coronavirus family of viruses their name, having a crown. Messenger RNA vaccines take advantage of the process that cells use to make proteins in order to trigger an immune response and build immunity to SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. In contrast, most other vaccines have used weakened or inactivated versions or components of the disease-causing pathogen to stimulate the body's immune response to create antibodies. In mRNA vaccines, strands of mRNA are in a protective coating that intercells near the vaccination site and instructs these cells to make a piece of the spike protein that is unique to the virus that causes COVID-19. Only part of the protein is made, not the entire virus. Once it is displayed on the cell surface, this protein, which is now an antigen for our body, causes our immune systems to begin producing antibodies and activates T cells to fight off what it perceives as an infection. These antibodies are specific to the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which means that our immune system is primed to protect against future infection. It's important to note that the mRNA never enters the body's cell nucleus and does not modify someone's genetic makeup. The mRNA rapidly breaks down. Manufacturing for this type of vaccine is quicker than for many other types. The newest vaccine is a viral vector vaccine made by Johnson & Johnson's Janssen. Many vaccines, as noted previously, use a weakened or inactivated form of the target pathogen or disease to trigger an immune response. So think of the annual influenza vaccine you may receive. That's using a killed virus. Viral vector vaccines use a different virus instead as a vector, delivering important instructions in the form of a gene to our cells. In a viral vector vaccine, a gene unique to the virus being targeted is added to the viral vector. For COVID-19 vaccines, this gene codes again for the spike protein only found on the surface of SARS-CoV-2. The viral vector is used to shuttle this gene into a human cell. And once inside a cell, the viral vector uses this gene and the cell's machinery to produce the spike protein and display it on the cell's surface. This antigen triggers production of antibodies and a resulting immune response. The virus used in a viral vector vaccine poses no threat of causing illness in humans because it has been modified. 
the Johnson & Johnson vaccine uses adenovirus, which are often used in viral vector vaccines because they can induce a robust immune response. As you know, vaccine supplies have been limited. So who decided or who decides on priorities for who will get first doses? The Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, various federal and state health departments, the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, and research institutions have all made a variety of recommendations. Advocacy groups representing constituents have also made statements. So for your consideration, think about how do you decide is it more important to vaccinate teachers or the disabled? There are multiple ethical concerns. The National Academies of Sciences developed a framework for equitable allocation of COVID-19 vaccine. Foundational principles included a maximum benefit to protect society. So example, healthcare providers have been vaccinated as well as the elderly, to protect society by keeping hospitals functioning and from being overrun by cases and having healthcare providers who are ill and unable to serve. An important ethical principle is equal concern. Each person has worth, and there's an equal concern for all persons with a protection from discrimination and mitigation of health inequities. In terms of procedure, the National Academies recommended fairness, transparency, and use of evidence to determine how vaccines will be distributed. And evidence means looking at research and looking at pre previous groups and previous efforts in public health. As a volunteer with the County of San Diego, I've been administering vaccines through the Medical Reserves Corps. And I can tell you that there are multiple logistical concerns. You've all heard about the closure of various superstations in San Diego County, people having appointments canceled or rescheduled because of lack of supply. The infrastructure to deliver vaccines to the entire United States has been built rapidly. Building on existing public health processes and infrastructure that have been sorely underfunded for the past decades. In addition to supply disruptions of vaccine, there have also been limited numbers of syringes. Storing vaccine is always very important. It must be kept under certain conditions, otherwise the vaccine loses efficacy. And this is true for all vaccines. The mRNA vaccines that were the first two available in the United States required markedly cold temperatures. Administrations of vaccine also requires careful technique. You have to use the appropriate syringe. Some vaccines need to be reconstituted. And mRNA vaccines require two doses, and they're not interchangeable. There have been numerous debates throughout this pandemic. The general public has become aware of the sausage making of science. Preprints, meaning articles that have not completely been reviewed, have been picked up by media. You have heard arguments between researchers, people with their own opinions. This is a normal part of science. As we learn more, things change. However, it's led to varieties of debates, including who should be of a priority, who and when will get vaccinated, and using which vaccine. 
This evening, we will touch primarily on inequities that lead some groups to be hesitant about vaccines. The topic of vaccine hesitancy is too big for us to cover fully tonight, but it is important that you be aware of this. The World Health Organization has a model for vaccine hesitancy, which looks at complacency. People don't feel that they're at risk from the disease, so they're not worried. Convenience, how easy is it to get the vaccine? And confidence, how much do people trust their government and their healthcare providers? Many groups have suffered racism and discrimination in seeking health care, and they've had ongoing injuries and inequities that may add to a lack of confidence. We have had confusing communication and messaging. The pandemic has been politicized. It's extremely difficult to get appointments, making the convenience absolutely gone for anyone. So anyone who's hesitant, it's not convenient. They're probably not going to get a vaccine. Social media has been flooded with fake news, and the mainstream media has rushed to carry every story they possibly can, sometimes giving information about potential side effects that later turned out to be untrue or of no concern. We now move on to disparities. Are we reaching those who are the most at risk? As you can see in the pie chart, deaths in the United States by race and ethnicity, 63.4% of all deaths have been in the white non-Hispanic population. They have received 68.7% of all vaccines. 14.6% of deaths have been in the black non-Hispanic population, and they have only received 6.7% of vaccine. The Hispanic or Latino population have accounted for 12% of deaths and they have received only 7.2% of vaccines. There are grave concerns for vaccine apartheid. Globally, the global north is receiving far more vaccines than the global south, where predominantly low and middle-income countries are. Winnie Bianima, who is the UN AIDS Executive Director, is quoted as saying, nine out of 10 people living in the poorest countries are set to miss out on vaccine this year. She went on to comment on unjustifiably high prices, blocking access, and threatening to push countries into an ever deeper debt crisis. What we know from science is that the longer it takes for us to vaccinate the population, the more likely we will have variants that are resistant to vaccines. And what about the USA? The European press has called the discrepancy in vaccine rates between white populations and black and Latino populations in Washington, D.C. and Texas vaccine apartheid. Laura discussed previously how difficult it is to get access to vaccines. San Diego County has moved as rapidly as possible, opening more sites in more and more locations. However, often people who are better equipped and able to travel have traveled from homes in more well-to-do northern neighborhoods to southern neighborhoods to receive their vaccines. San Diego County does offer free transportation on the Metropolitan Transition with an appointment, but some people are not aware of this. So it's important to think about who communicates what information and how and who gets the information. We look forward to discussing all of these issues with you tonight. The following slide gives some resources and websites that may be helpful.
Thank you. Thanks, Martha, for getting us all back up to speed. And welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining us tonight. Now that you have some background on the issues that we're going to be taking on tonight, I have the pleasure of introducing our panelists. So I'm going to say a few words about each of them and ask them each to then share something about their expertise or their experience or their training that helps to shape the frame that they are going to be considering the issues that we're going to be talking about tonight. So first we have Dr. Sharon Keppel, who has been a nurse practitioner for over 20 years and is now also a Associate Professor and Clinical Associate Professor at the Hahn School of Nursing and Health Sciences at the University of San Diego. Sharon earned her doctorate in nursing in 2015 and is also a proud member of the Chickasaw Tribe, uh, which led her to study American Indian women's health perceptions and health promotion behaviors for her dissertation. So welcome, Sharon. Can you share a little bit with the audience about your background and, and how that shapes how you think about the issues we're taking on tonight? Thank you. Yes, when, I, um, when I'm looking at the health disparities of the slide that Martha spoke about, my concern is that also of the Native population. We have such a um, high death rate and such a low vaccine rate, and my hope is that over time as we continue to get more and more vaccines to these disparate populations, that um, we can actually add value and conduct research and find out why these populations tend to be hesitant over time about actually getting the vaccine. Thank you. Next, we have Dr. Adina Batnitsky. She's an associate professor of sociology, also from the University of San Diego. Her scholarship is shaped by her time abroad in the Middle East by way of the Peace Corps, as well as her postdoctoral studies at Oxford and her tenure at UT Austin in the Department of Geography and the Environment prior to arriving at USD in, in 2011. So, uh, Adina, can you tell us a little bit about your work and how you're thinking about tonight's discussion? Absolutely. So as a medical sociologist, I have really understood the unequal impacts of COVID through an inherently sociological lens. And really the disparities in terms of who has died, who have lost their jobs and who has already been vaccinated can all be understood sociologically. And really none of these patterns are surprising when the economic and health consequences of an epidemic pandemic is added to an already deeply unequal society rooted in systemic racism and other forms of stratification, really we can expect these types of inequalities to emerge. And so I'm really interested um, in discussing this evening how we can move forward as a society and whether real systemic change is possible. Thanks, that's gonna be a great discussion. Next we have Hanak Gitane. And he is a lead community health worker and crisis counselor for uh, UW East, which stands for United Women of East Africa, which is a San Diego nonprofit that provides health services, education, and advocacy for the East African community. And he also has worked as a community organizer for Mid-City CAN, which stands for Community Advocacy Network. And there he focused on food justice. And Hanok's understanding of the needs of immigrant communities is fostered by his own immigrant experience and time abroad including uh, his study of philosophy in Ethiopia, theology in Brazil, and nonprofit leadership and management at the University of San Diego, where he earned a master's degree. So welcome, Henok. Can you tell us a little bit about your experiences? Hi, uh, my name is Henok. Thank you so much uh, to be here. Uh, yes, of course, I, was, uh, I work as a lead community organizer 
that meet uh, at uh, United Women of East Africa, but also crisis counselor with refugee and immigrant population, specifically in City Heights. And uh, COVID-19 is uh, it really hit hard in our community. And it's, uh, the impact is so painful uh, financially, but also spiritually to our community. Uh, community members lost their jobs and also their spiritual belongings too. And uh, even worse, they cannot get together and be main uh, a place where they can celebrate or uh, get together for uh, for the challenge that they are facing at this time. So United Women of East Africa, like uh, uh, we step up, uh, including the government and also the city of uh, San Diego, we try to help our community members uh, to get informed about COVID-19 uh, specifically, what is COVID-19, but also after understanding what's COVID-19, but also for them to get vaccinated. Uh, it's been very challenging uh, because of also the internet and also uh, some information. Uh, a lot of community members are left out because of they don't have information. So that's why uh, United Women of East Africa are coming up and also helping community members uh, to understand what's going on, but also to be more uh, active in whatever is going on in our uh, community. Thank you. Thank you. And I appreciate that you shared that because I think what's going to make tonight particularly impactful is that although COVID-19 is, is obviously a global pandemic, tonight we're going to be able to really zoom in and, and talk about what's happening in our community of San Diego. So I appreciate that we're going to be able to hear that, especially from you. And then finally, I guess I'll reintroduce because you've already met her, Dr. Martha Fuller, who is a, a practicing pediatric nurse practitioner since 1983 and is currently an associate professor, also at the Hahn School of Nursing and Health Sciences at the University of San Diego, and she's lead faculty for the pediatric nurse practitioner track. Martha earned her doctorate in nursing after completing her study of neurodevelopmental follow-up of premature infants and is currently involved in a number of different research projects looking at factors that impact the well-being and outcomes of, of infants and children. So I'll turn it over to Martha to introduce herself and I know that uh, further and I know that she actually has some experience delivering vaccines in San Diego. So maybe you want to share um, just a little bit about that as well. Thank you so much. It's so good to see everyone this evening. Um, and as a pediatric nurse practitioner, vaccines have always been key to me. That's part of practice in pediatrics. And so I was very excited to have the opportunity to serve as a volunteer with the county um, administering vaccines. Right now, volunteers are actually on a, on a break because of the inconsistency in supply. So the county decided rather than having a schedule volunteer time that we would, um, they would wait and reactivate us in another couple of weeks. As a volunteer, what I discovered was I would choose to go volunteer in areas in Chula Vista or in parts of San Diego where I knew would traditionally be 
places where I should be seeing people from that neighborhood, which have been very hard hit by um, COVID-19. And I ended up administering a lot of vaccines to people from Del Mar and La Jolla and Encinitas who were able and had the resources to get appointments. And that really struck me about how the system works because I know how difficult it was for me to schedule an appointment for my own mother. And it took a lot of time and a lot of flexibility. And a lot of people don't have that time, that flexibility or that access. So I was delighted to know that Henock and his group are helping people in their community. And I think that this all feeds into my global interest and care about people who don't have the resources that all of us have and what that does to impact communities and children. And so I know that right now we can't vaccinate children for COVID-19, but we will soon. And um, But communities that are healthy are communities that raise healthy children. So that ties it all together for me. And thanks, Laura. Thank you. So as I said during the intro, we've never tried to vaccinate 330 million people at the same time before. So while there's certainly people out there that have relevant experience and expertise, there's no one person or, or group that has ever done anything like this before. And so that's why it's really important that we have a lot of different voices in the conversation, that people bring different viewpoints, different experiences, different perspectives, different community values to this conversation. And, and that will help reveal pitfalls and, and things that planners may not have, have thought of otherwise. So in a few minutes, we are going to do something that my understanding is an ethics center first, and we are going to be dividing up into four breakout rooms, and each breakout room will feature one of our panelists, and the panelists will facilitate a discussion on one of the issues related to our COVID-19 vaccination program. So one last thing, though, before we join our breakout rooms, I want to give you a framework for having these discussions, because we're going to be taking on a, a classic problem in bioethics. What do you do when there's a short supply of a life-saving resource? And bioethics, bioethicists rely on the tools I'm about to tell you about because there's no right answer to these questions. There's not one solution that's going to make everybody happy. There's maybe better and, and worse answers, but there's never the perfect answer. So what bioethicists do when they're trying to come, come up with a solution, again, to a problem of, of limited supply of a life-saving resource, for example, they consider four, four principles. And these are the four principles of bioethics. So the first is autonomy. And that is honoring the individual, honoring the, the desires of the individual and recognizing that they need to be able to make a decision for themselves about themselves, about their, their um, med making medical decisions without coercion from anybody else. Uh, the second principle is beneficence. So wanting to maximize good. The third principle is the reciprocal beneficence and that's non-maleficence. So minimizing harm, you wanna do the minimum amount of harm. And then the fourth principle, I think one that's gonna play, um, get a lot of attention tonight is, is justice. This idea of fairness, that, that how do we make sure that there's not one individual or group of people that's getting an outsized share of a, either the benefit or the burden. So what I think I'm gonna do now is go through each of our panelists in this 
same order that I introduced them and let them give a, a recap of what happened in your breakout room, maybe what question you took on, some if there was any sort of consensus that emerged or a point of, of contention or questions that were left unanswered that would, um, and anything that you think the, the broader audience would be interested to know, that would be um, fantastic. So uh, Sharon, we'll start with you. Thank you, um, thank you, Laura. I I asked the uh, I asked the population what they thought about um, uh, as a barrier that um, for groups that needed to be vaccinated that had a high death rate and still had a um, low vaccination rate. And interestingly, um, some of the things that we talked about, but even more so, it came down to um, logistics for um, individuals trying to get vaccinations, but not just logistics, the fact that somebody has to continually refresh a feed on their computer just trying to make an appointment. So how does it um, work for disparate populations that are at work? working nine to five or those just um, having to have a child to take a child with them to ac actually get a vaccination. So having appointments to, and getting um, to be so difficult to make those appointments, that was really problematic. And we talked about just overall digital technology issues and language barriers, but just the, as the access and the historical um, distrust and how someone had mentioned that even in Nigeria, they have key opinion leaders or they have, you know, leaders in high positions that are still, you know, having these um, these stories about how, you know, don't take the vaccine because the white people are trying to kill us. And that and that's very heartbreaking to me. And how do we um, reach out to those key opinion leaders in life or those that, you know, hold high positions in power to actually convince them or to sit down and, and at the table with them and say, what can we do to help you understand that the vaccine is really important? I um, and, and I think that's a question that should continue to be discussed. What do we need to do to help dispel some of the myths and the stories? And then just a historical distrust overall that was mentioned. Anytime you have stories and then you have a great um, a, a digital technology platform to spread those stories, emotional contagion sets in. And when that happens, you have people saying, you know, I'm not going to get it. I have to have more information. And some of them are open. But if they're continuing to tell the story, then we see to have um, those less vaccine rates or those st still hesitant individuals, especially with in some of the disparate populations. Thank you. I, I think you really highlight why it's so important that we we have discussions like this where we have so many different voices and representatives from different communities that can share the specific concerns of these communities that somebody that wasn't in it might not appreciate or understand. And it's really going to take a member of that community to be able to deliver the news in a way that that the others will will trust and and uh, accept. So thank you. Um, Adina. Yeah, we had a great discussion and really it was focused around this question of how we could have done things more equitably, recognizing that that has, of course, not been the case. So some great suggestions emerged in our discussion. Um, this question of simple things like using zip codes as a way of allocating uh, vaccines and then preventing some of the patterns that 
other panelists and community members have noticed of people coming from other communities and taking the vaccines of those who might need it the most or more. Once again, this is, of course, a key ethical question. So there was really a recognition that the ability to do something like this exists, but really the question is, is the will of the system? So really getting at this key sociological understanding and need for systemic change. Another question that emerged um, or that guided our discussion was, how do we move forward in terms of really rebuilding trust within these communities, but also between communities and the medical profession, whether it's the World Health Organization, whether it's just health practitioners, people waiting for their primary physicians to contact them, and of course, never getting um, that notification. And so sort of an overload of information, but yet not really a full transparent sense of how to access the vaccine was shared by several of the participants in my group. Another thing emerged um, in terms of where do we get our information from and the lack of transparent and consistent messaging. And so this has been a really critical shortcoming of both the vaccine and COVID more generally speaking. And so the group that I was with really highlighted that we need to hear from scientists. And so scientists that both are look like the communities in which they're serving, but also just, you know, once again, scientists on a much more regular basis. And so the need for more transparency, even in moments when there is ambiguous data available, And the last uh, point that we kind of left it at was looking at the anti-vaxxing movement and how that is being handled um, as well, that the same vigor with which they're presenting their argument, which many of the group members said that, you know, we need to hear all sides of these debates, um, is not being met with the same strength from scientists. And so it was a lovely discussion. And thank you to all of you for participating. Wow, it sounds like you covered a lot of ground. That's um, that's fantastic. One of the things I, I heard that resonated with me is it sounds like your discussion highlighted the fact that COVID didn't cause these disparities in our healthcare system. It's it's shown a spotlight on them, and they're going to be there when we're when when COVID is done. And so maybe now is the time to try to invest in in fixing some of those problems so that knock on wood <laughs> when when and if this happens again that we'll we'll be better prepared so thank you um Hanok, can you share what um happened in our breakout room what we discussed hi this is Hanok. so thank you so much yeah so uh the the main thing uh what we discussed in our uh group was regarding information uh but also how community leaders can influence uh, our decision. And uh, uh, some, some, some of the, the, the people that we, we talked about, they say they get their information from different resources, uh, but also how the science also informed them. Uh, but we focused more uh, I think I think we talked more about how religious people that they can influence our, our decision, and uh, one of the things which came up to our group is to discuss about 
okay, how do you do, do you reach out to uh, the leaders in your community, spiritual leaders, and also how to ask them questions, but also help them to be, uh, help us how to spread this good news. So, we are here. Hello, Laura, can can you add to that what I said, please? Yes, um, we had a a great conversation as well. I think um, what really struck me was, I I think it's um, highlighting what Adina and Sharon said as well, that, that there is a real desire to hear from scientists. I think we talked about religious leaders and there were a few folks that, that shared, but it sounds like most people weren't part of the problem is we're, we're not able to gather in, in large groups right now. So I think that has made it hard for faith community members to actually be together. And so it's left people looking for other sources, but, but it sounded like there was a real desire to hear from people that were either scientists or sources that you didn't need to vet, that you could know. Uh, we heard the CDC website, we heard the, the um, WHO website, that you wouldn't have to vet before um, you, you could accept that information and know that the information that you were um, getting is, is good. All right, um, Martha, can you share some highlights from your discussion? Absolutely. Well, we had a very um, interesting discussion. We started off by talking about which groups they would choose, people who would we choose to prioritize. And and, and, uh, there's a fair amount of agreement for the people at high risk, thinking about healthcare professionals. But then interesting concept to really think maybe to think about looking at prioritizing communities and zip codes that have been the most severely impacted by the um, pandemic. And also, I think that it did make those of us in healthcare have to look at ourselves. Um, the stories that have been carried in the New York Times and other media of people who are hospital administrators or people who are working exclusively by telehealth being prioritized for vaccines. Mm-hmm. So I think that no one has any concern about frontline workers being prioritized. But when there's a shortage of vaccine and you're giving it to the person who works in in some hospital administrative role and we'll never see a patient. But, but, you know, it makes all of us look bad and I think it raises some ethical concerns. The other concern that was brought up, which I think is quite appropriate, is in terms of, especially for my interest, is, well, we haven't tested this vaccine in children. And, you know, the process of new medications, new vaccines, the rollout is almost always with adults first, but it, we really need to think ahead perhaps if there should be, because we know there'll be other pandemics. How do we prioritize kids? Because of course that would help in terms of children's loss of education um, this year. And then issues about kids not going to school. So someone said that only about 40% of adolescents um, in their school district were coming back in person despite the fact that we've all heard terrible things about teenagers' um, mental health concerns and people losing a, you know, an entire year of, of education. And discussion regarding some fear or vaccine hesitancy, perhaps if they're old enough, if they're 16, they can receive the vaccine from their parents. And, but also 
the fact that families are not sending a kid to school because if the child becomes ill, they may do fine, but they may bring it to a vulnerable family member who um, would then be hospitalized, but also parents who have jobs with, that they can't afford to take sick time. Um, and I think we talked about a little bit about where you get your information. And most people are not getting their information from social media, which is good, though they do talk about some positive courses, some positive um, people on social media who are actually making good posts that are helpful and proper and with well education, uh, I'm well from well-educated people. Um, I think, and also we had a discussion about sharing stories about how hard it has been to make an appointment. And one of the um, participants talked about not realizing what that impact would be on somebody who didn't have all these resources, how difficult it is. Um, but people had lots to say, and we were fortunate we had a nurse who's been caring for COVID patients during this entire time in, in ICU, and she described her experiences and how it, I think it, perhaps expressing some of the, the frustration and the sorrow that it's not just the elderly. It's There are also young people who come in, or middle-aged people who come in and get sick and die, and have, what a painful experience that has been. And then to think about people perhaps not getting a vaccine. And, and the suggestion that we all need to be better prepared for next time. Have supplies, you know, she described shortages of personal protective equipment, oxygen, all those things that we've had problems with that we need to plan ahead better for the next pandemic. So hopefully I covered it all. We had a great group. Thank you. Yeah, you all covered a lot of ground too. That's really interesting. It overlapped a bit with part of our discussion too, with the problem with um, getting the appointments. And if you have a, a job that doesn't have a lot of flexibility and you're not able to just drop and run or Think thinking about um, if you have planning ahead for side effects. So some of the sometimes the second shot can hit you pretty hard, and and you know you might be in bed for a day. Um, some folks have jobs that that they can't take the day to to you know to um, stay in bed and and feel better, and therefore are not getting the vaccine because they don't feel like they can take that chance. So um, I thought that was a, a really interesting comment. I will I'll give the question to everybody. So the, the question was, we need to focus on ideas that will help. I felt our group got stuck on religious issues with the vaccine. Religious leaders, educators, medical persons need to maybe be on panels. Let's try positive ideas. This is all real, real to all of us. So a good point. So what are the solutions? Well, I was impressed recently um, that the Black Nurses Association of San Diego County was involved in a vaccine drive, um, specifically um, with the black population in San Diego. But I think that what that is, is professionals who are sort of, they're volunteering their time, putting their, putting their, their selves out there and doing outreach into a clinic instead of into a community, instead of saying, well, you have to go through this complicated process and make an appointment if you're lucky enough to get one or drive into the superstation, they were able to um, use their own resources. And I thought that that was very positive. I've also heard some interesting approaches being tried um, for, we sent the 
the fire department of San Diego County, the count, not the city, but I think the county fire department EMSs took vaccine out and they were educated in, um, in how to administer vaccine and they went to our rural areas of San Diego County, um, which I think is a positive. That's something to make a difference. Um, in my group, I think someone's suggestion that really those of us who are healthcare professionals need to be fighting misinformation on social media by making our own posts, which is a bit challenging for us. Many of us only like to use social media to see our grandchildren's pictures or something, but um, uh, to use it for some, um, to use it for the greater good. And here's, um, I see something in the chat too. Um, yeah, so I'll I'll go ahead and read that. And I think just to respond to the, the comment as well, I think what Hanak was saying and asking about religious um, leaders getting involved in this is that for his the community that he works with, the East African community, religious leaders are very trusted, and perhaps more so than some of the medical community. So if we're coming at it from, you know, and this just highlights how we need to have those different perspectives, because personally, if I wanted information, that wouldn't be about this, that wouldn't be who I turn to, but that's that's specific to my experience and, and my culture. And, and Hanak was sharing that with his group, religious leaders hold that position. And so it is important to have, to, to have diverse um, uh, voices out there, but, and, and not all voices are going to reach everybody. And, and I think that's what uh, that, that creeps into what uh, Emanuela is saying in her comment. Um, a lot of cultures just don't agree with Western medicine. So while in our, um, and, and I'll turn it over to the panelists, but in, in our group, a lot of people did talk about the CDC and the, and the WHO, and, and that works for those of us that, that do um, have a lot of, of faith in that way of doing things. That's not the way that everybody does things. So, so maybe Adina can touch on that or Sharon. I mean, you've got experience with the um, Native American population. Yeah. And, and I want to address the, um, the, the comment about how um, a lot of cultures, you know, just don't always agree with Western medicine. And that is very true. When we, um, when we consider that, you know, Ayurvedic or holistic medicine has been around for 5,000 years, and Western medicine is actually a baby. It's only been around for what, 325 years or so. And, you know, it truly was built on the empirical model. That's how Western medicine is built. And, you know, before um, we showed up with Western medicine and we had all the sciences and we had Madame Curie and we had all these vaccines available to, you know, our population you know, when we talk about vaccines, they truly are that um, social collectivism that, and I think I want to let Adina speak to that, to actually take care of multiple populations throughout the whole world. And, but when you're in a village and the only medicine you have is the medicine that you have passed down through history with your um, own population, that's the medicine that you're going to trust and that's the medicine you're going to use. And I think that we have to respect that coming at it from a vaccine perspective, just as we do. And I'll let Adina um, add to this. We can't come in, you know, guns a blazing and say, you need this vaccine. We're all about numbers in Western medicine. And we have to understand that these cultures truly look at their own types of medicine as the real medicine to, to be used. 
And Adina, I'm going to let you add that because you're the you're the sociologist. I'm sure you can do that. All right. Well, Sharon, thank you. Um, no, absolutely. Two things come to mind is first, it's the the burden of the Western medical model to think of culturally competent ways to work with diverse communities. And so this means some things that are quite simple, making information available in multiple languages, making sure that information is being disseminated in spaces and places where these communities gather and not using a one size fits all approach, which we historically have done. With that said, communities have been incredibly creative. I, I know Hanuk shared some of the work that he's been doing, but I've also read about the promoteras that have been used as kind of bridges between the Western medical model and more as you know, Sharon describes what maybe in sociology we think of as the ethnomedical model of medicine that is much more holistic. And so I think tonight's panel really highlights the need to get community leaders and members together with scientists, with policymakers. And once again, it's about, as you know, already my fellow panelists and all of the participants have echoed, um, work together collectively because as Laura said so eloquently, these issues did not exist, um, you know, they don't exist in a bubble. They predated um, last you know, before COVID. And so, um, you know, really they're just bearing their heads right now in full force. And so really it's about, you know, as a sociologist, we would talk about cultural competency and also cultural congruency. And so the need for us to um, once again, think about issues of cultural relativism, as well as, you know, all of the other great points that my panelists have made and really handling each community uniquely and not um, you know, one size fits all approach. I guess I would chime in that we also need to think about the fact that for many communities, their experience seeking healthcare is very different than my experience. So they may be treated disrespectfully in the check-in process. They may be, um, their desires, their norms may be ignored. So, for example, not provided with appropriate draping um, that would be required for them. So there's no reason to think that people who have been treated poorly are going to want to rush to get a new vaccine. And we, we those of us in healthcare, have to take some we have to take on some of this onus and realize that the structural racism that has impacted poor levels of care for populations of color for a long time is now affecting people's willingness to participate or their ability to participate in getting vaccines. And I think more and more people are interested in getting vaccines, but it's still very difficult to do so. We actually have a, a, it was a direct comment to me, but but is really mirroring what our uh, Martha and, and Adina and uh, Sharon just shared that, um, that, that this person has said that the last year has really revealed for them uh, this idea that we don't all necessarily share a collective experience that before this happened, we, we are, we're all American. We all sort of, you know, are living the American way. And, and what this has really revealed for this person is that that's not the case, that we are in 
are we are in silos to a degree and and those silos differ in in how much computer literacy you have how much, how um, outsized or small a role religion plays in your life and and access to you know um, access to all sorts of different resources so that's um, I thought a really thoughtful comment um, okay let's see there is an interesting question here um, have you heard of any city councils in the county moving in the direction of organizing vaccine drives? I'm not sure what exactly is meant by vaccine drives, but I interpret that to mean as a bit more proactive, trying to, to get out there and get more folks turning out to get um, vaccinated. And, and if I'm not interpreting the question correctly, please, um, please let me know. I think I've heard about, you know, as I said, there have been some from private organizations. I know that San Diego County is trying and they have sent out information about opening new sites and they're trying to put sites in proximity to neighborhoods that have been most severely impacted, particularly now that we are opening up more and more eligibility for vaccines. Um, but I don't know that there, I have not heard of specific vaccine drives, but that doesn't mean they're not happening. I just. I'm going to add to that, Martha. We, um, you know, on some of the local reservations, um, I happened to um, talk to someone yesterday and she was very excited because she actually was able to go to the local clinic um, on the reservation and be vaccinated with her family we are actually starting to deliver vaccines to more and more of the um, reservations. And this is also true um, in Utah. I kind of sometimes go back and forth and I'm very happy to tell everyone that yes, we are finally getting the vaccines out there because if we don't take the vaccines to the people, it's difficult for the people to get to the vaccines. Thank you. I understand that April had a question. Yeah, I was just going to say that I think, you know, as some people have said, this is a long-term issue. Um, and I think one of the big um, long-term solutions is more equity and diversity in who are who doctors are and who's involved in STEM. Because um, there's research that, you know, Black infants have better outcomes or less likely to die um, if they're attended to by a Black doctor. And so, you know, I think that um, getting rid of a lot of the barriers to diversifying the medical profession by, um, you know, first of all, the costs um, of, of medical school, but also, system, you know, the way systemic racism plays into the application processes is a big part of kind of dealing with this long term. And then something else that I said in our little small group, but I think is worth repeating, is that I worry sometimes that this focus on um minority cultures or culture of people, communities of color being vaccine hesitant um, can, can lead to pathologizing these communities when we know that a lot of anti-vaccination or vaccine hesitant groups are often white and privileged. Um, and so I think it's important to both to, to be aware of that and not to fall into that discourse. I'm watching the clock and we just have one minute left. So I want to um, give our panelists, is there anybody that wants to have a, a last word, anything that you'd like to share? I would like to uh, share something um, with, with all the um, you know, participants that are here. It is important for all of us 
to be able to help um, dispel the myths and do research to go out and share the information and the knowledge. And when you come across someone that it truly is a, a naysayer and they believe that, you know, vaccines are, you know, no good and these vaccines are really bad. It's our job to educate them and to show them, um, you know, where we can get reliable and valid information. And the moment we are not collectively working as a group for, for, for the better of the world, then for all of us that are here, what are we, um, why are we here and what are we doing? Because all of us have to work collective. You know, um, and I don't know if anyone is familiar with um, Heidi Larson and the book Stuck, but I recommend you taking a read because she talks about the very thing that, you know, vaccines have always been this huge, you know, um, collective social experiment. And because it's really what brings us together and we are a very global population. We, are, we move all over the globe with ease, with all of the abilities to fly and to drive, and that spreads disease. And we have vaccines, and we should be able to use um, the vaccines that are available to us. However, there's so much myths and stories surrounding not just the COVID vaccine, but many vaccines. So again, reach out. Look at the information that you have, and especially for a lot of the students that are on here, I think it's important that it's your job as someone that's even younger to go out and share the information and do it with grace and compassion. So the people that are listening to you are truly listening. I think that's a fantastic way to wrap up the evening. And thank you to our, thank you, first of all, to the audience for joining us tonight. I know that I've learned a lot and I really enjoyed hearing so many different voices. And thank you to our panelists for sharing your time and your expertise with us. Um, and with that, I will turn it back to Mike. Thanks. Thanks very much. I mean, I, I really want to thank all of the panelists, um, Martha, Adina, Sharon, Hennick, and Laura for moderating this session. This was outstanding. It was a really important and thoughtful discussion. I want to thank everybody for uh, joining this evening and have a good night. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.